This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Steven. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that the show will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. What are you guys drinking this week? Mm, uh, I'm drinking another beautiful whiskey glass of Lagavulin 16. Ooh. Neat. Excellent. Yeah. I'm learning that you just love that. Yeah. Cutting loose this week, man. Get into it. <laughs> mm. What about you, Emily? I'm drinking a Gatorade Thirst Quencher. Flavor is cool blue. Mm-hmm. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. What? It's like what right. does blue taste like? I'm sorry. It tastes. I don't even know. There's no like blue raspberry. Yeah, but not as not as like tart. Oh, okay. Hmm. It tastes like blue, um, Josh. Why do we need to deconstruct it? Come on, <laughs> get with it. But enough about my beverage. Um, I'm drinking. I know it's currently the evening time already. It's only five where I am, so this is fine. But I just made myself a coffee. Um, I'm doing an Ethiopian coffee, the birthplace of coffee in the world, roasted by Olympia Coffee Ooh. here in Washington. Mm-hmm. And I did it iced, and it's really delicious. It's very light and refreshing. Not quite a Gatorade, uh, but no. it's pretty refreshing. There we go. To start us off this week, I, I have a question for Emily mostly because she's the expert in the room. Sorry, Stephen. Um, <laughs> Armchair theologian loud, here, yeah. I know, I, can I know. That. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I thought I whispered that. I didn't, I'm so sorry. Um, that that was on mic. Yep. <laughs> um, it hurts, but I, I can see it. I'll give oh, it to you. I don't know fine. if you took a class on this, Emily, or if like you've encountered some answers to this. I feel like this is a point of disagreement. Ooh. Um. When is the apocalypse? <laughs> Start with something light, shall we? Yeah, I thought I'd just throw it out there. When, when are we looking at? What can we expect? What, wow. This is 2020, and um, mm. I kind of need to know if it's like the end of the year. So, so oh, mm. okay, so running joke, my husband Alex and I have been saying that maybe the Mayans got it wrong when they thought it was 2012, and it really was 2020. Uh to answer your question, Josh, uh, yes. Oh, that's actually not what I expected you to say, but please tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> so I cannot indefinitely say when or even how the apocalypse will take place. Um, so my answer was just yes. And I say that because partially I believe that we are a part of our own demise and whether or not we create the apocalypse are we are we uh essentially putting the pieces together for the apocalypse to take place what is even the apocalypse because there are different there are different stories of how that looks very true and so that that's why my answer was just yep uh uh-huh because (laughs) (laughs) because it just is you bring up a good point about like there being different not even just different interpretations, but like different definitions yes. of what apocalypse even refers to. Mm-hmm. Um, what what kind of insight would you put into that? Oh. Like, what do you think we should glean from that? Like, I don't even think we need to have a whole conversation about like a millennial versus pre millennial versus post millennial. Like, that's that's a whole different thing, I think maybe. But right, like even like the, just the word apocalypse, I feel like we have different concepts of. Well, so should. Should we maybe start with that in order sure. to establish yeah. further conversation? So, yeah, since you were the one, since you're the one that initiated the, the the question, I am now posing it to you. How or what do you define as apocalypse, and what is your well, basis for the definition? Because that I think is important. It's not enough just to define it. It's an, it has to be why you are defining it in that case. I'm saying this as a very amateur theologian. But the word apocalypse does not refer to the end of the world. 
The word apocalypse, apocalypsis, means an unveiling or revealing of something, like like pulling back the curtain on reality. Mm. And so in that sense, I don't think when we're talking about apocalypse, we should just be talking about the end of the world. Right. Like, I think we can talk about that if we want to, but I, I think it's really limiting if we're only talking about that. I For agree. instance, I think, I think you could very easily argue from a scholarly point of view that Jesus coming was an apocalyptic event in the sense that yes. he was like pulling back the curtain on saying like, you guys like missed the point of what we were trying to do with leading you to God. And like, I'm here to set the record. The only way to the father is through me. Mm-hmm. You're missing the point with the law. Here's what it is. Here's how we fulfill the law. It's loving God and loving your neighbor. I would argue that's an apocalyptic event, right. not well, apocalyptic mm-hmm. event in the sense of the world is being destroyed. Right. Well, because essentially, like the other word that you could use is revelation. Mm-hmm. It's an unveiling right. or an unfolding of things that were not previously known or could not have been known apart from the unveiling taking place. Right. Well, and that's the whole, I think the confusion is like Revelation is the only book of the Bible that its genre is so unique. It's like its own thing. Yes. Like mm-hmm. it, it's, it falls under the genre of Jewish apocalyptic literature, but it's the only book that's included in the Bible that is that mm-hmm. genre. So it's like that's really confusing true. to us modern readers um, because like we don't have a cultural equivalent of it, but it no. sounds like the the imagery feels like the end of the world. So I like I see where we get there, but like that was never the point of like Jewish apocalyptic literature was to describe like the end of the world. Like it was much more grander and cosmological than that. Right. Absolutely. So so where I'm thinking about this now is you know how Paul in a couple places talks about. Like, I don't think he uses the phrase the end times. I think that we've come up with that ourselves. But he, like, talks about mm-hmm. the last days or, like, the, the days of Christ. And he seems to be using those interchangeably. Mm-hmm. I would also argue, then, that if we are in the last days... Well, Jesus talks about this, too. Like, in the last days, this and this and this. But they're, like, making references to the last days being the era of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, if we're, like, in the era of jesus i don't know like i just can't get it out of my head that like apocalypse is now like it's always Mm -hmm. here and like what like kind of like what you said like we can make up our own demise and like kind of experience a hell on earth and like things are going the way they shouldn't sure and all of that but like i think if we allow ourselves to see it like apocalypse is all around us Mm -hmm. and it's not the end of the world well so you bring up a good point because like if we if you take the book of Revelation, first of all, it's like a very obscure, but also like a very extravagant sort of imagery contained within the book. And that leads to so many different interpretations. So like, I'm just thinking one of the ones that pop into my head was like a from a historic interpretation. They actually mm. see it as interpretations like containing a broad view of history pertaining specifically to the first century, like referring to events from the first century. Whereas futurists, which would be mainly modern readers, we think it mm. describes future events. Mm. And so it really depends on are we taking it from a symbolic or a historic or a you know premonition sort of standpoint? It's just or is it all allegory? You know, you just we right. don't know. Well, I feel like that's a good distinction because like the the readers back then, I don't think just thought of well this isn't relevant to us if it's about the future you know what i mean yeah like that's i think a, that's i think they thought point. like well this is like relevant to us now like th- there's something for us here and now mm-hmm. in this text because it is in itself revealing right not just like about some future point in time or or like here's the other thing i was thinking about the other day almost every generation of christians i would argue expected Jesus to come back in their lifetime. Like, I think early Christians absolutely Mm. believed that Jesus was somehow coming back to them physically and that they absolutely expected to not die. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And ever since, like, 
and maybe more so now in modern American Christianity, we have this expectation of like, well, Jesus is probably like right around the corner. So he's like coming back. But I heard in some interview a couple, oh, like a while ago, like, what if Jesus doesn't come back for 10,000 years? Right. Like we can't live as if we have no long-term plan for our faith, like in the large community sense. Mm -hmm. And so it just like, I feel like that has just gotten me thinking so much about like, we need to see like the end times as now still, but in the sense of not like this is the end of the world, Jesus is coming back in our generation, but rather this is the last days, the end times in the sense of revealing an apocalypse happens to us now in our lives. Yeah. Or even to say end time or like end of the world, is it actually just a revealing into the divine or the heavenly or the spiritual more than we were able to see on earth. Mm. Yeah. Well, and Stephen, uh, I feel like this is what you were getting at in our last episode, to be honest. Mm. Like, Oh, how so? Speak like, more. Because you, you in, in some sense, you like feel pulled away from church, almost as if it was against your will. Like, like you didn't choose it. Like, mm, I feel like I've yeah. heard other friends like make that comparison. Like, well, if I was going to choose what I believe or like how I am, like I wouldn't have chosen this because this sucks. Oh, yeah. Like, right. Like, so you're experiencing this like personal revealing, like almost like you're like stumbling upon these beliefs and attitudes yourself. But mm. I don't, it just seems like such an apocalyptic event, like as a personal event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's some language I've put it put to it in my journal around essentially like I feel like I'm in a season of my life where I've done my theological deconstruction and mm-hmm. now now God Christ spirit gets to deconstruct me as oh, a Oh yeah, yeah. as as an ego and yeah, it the apocalyptic is the right word for it because there are things that have shaped me and crafted me into the the young man I am today that in 2019 I would have never predicted Mm. and at the same time I wouldn't necessarily say that I want to go back to 2019 to the before times or before the apocalypse Mm -hmm. um Mm. I like well and we're honestly using the same language for the pandemic like whether you're religious or not like I think a lot of people Mm. like feel the cultural and national turmoil especially in America right now and I think to a lot of people they they like they're using this apocalyptic language and I would agree with them but I don't agree with that because I think the world is ending I agree Mm -hmm. that it feels apocalyptical because like things are being revealed like we are yeah, coming yeah. to like new conclusions that like we would not have come to otherwise in other circumstances. Right. And what we're experiencing in our granularity is what is like trying to be revealed on a cosmic scale. So like we were mm-hmm. you guys were talking yes, about revelation yeah, exactly. earlier and that's that's essentially how I read revelation nowadays is I uh, I'm not convinced that prophecy was ever designed to be like future telling. Right. And I think uh the role of a prophet in the Old Testament and the New, if you're listening to John the Baptist, Jesus himself, Paul, uh, I think these these prophet-like characters, I think they're 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 doing their work to awaken their audience mm-hmm. to what's happening like right mm-hmm. around them. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a lot of eschatological weight given to the mm-hmm. Book of Daniel, but right. I don't think Daniel was ever talking about the year 3021 when the world's about to end. But he was talking about apocalypse. Mm-hmm. He was talking about his world disintegrating around him while mm-hmm. Israel was being carried off to exile and he was forced to live inside the new superpower of the day. Right. Like he, he right. was right. He was putting symbolic language in very literary and like uh, imaginative language around what it was like for him to be a young man carried off in exile Hmm. and not allowed to return. And I think John the revelator was doing the same thing when he wrote the book of revelation was, I I think um, I I can't read revelation anymore without seeing a withering critique of the Roman empire and the way that human systems like build themselves up to oppress others. Once 
<laughs> once groupthink takes over and once too many status quos are drawn up so that like okay you're part of the roman empire now so you have to act like this mm-hmm. like that causes problems and eventually the roman empire disintegrates because of it right um and i think that's what john was getting at at the in the book of revelation and again it's it's a constant movement from here's my granular experience and here's how i think this maps onto what may be happening on a cosmic scale mm-hmm. right exactly and I think people right now feel that cosmological tension. I think there's people like you, Stephen, experiencing that like personal apocalypsis, we might say, of faith. Mm. But and like you're realizing like things that you like had not realized before about like what you believe in, like where you want to fit in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think you're sure. right. I feel like the the general apocalypse does refer to like something grander and like bigger scale. You made me think of um this verse in Ephesians. I just looked it up. It you made me think of the the part where Paul quotes something that says awake sleeper rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And I have like a footnote mm-hmm. that says they don't actually know like where that saying came from. Paul's just like quoting something mm-hmm. and just like included <laughs> it in the canonical Bible, but like they don't know like where it came from. Mm. Is they like think it might have been a hymn or like some other writing that Paul just references. But I actually really like these verses before. I just want to read them because I feel like this is exactly what you were saying. Um, Also, I think this is the first time we're actually quoting the Bible on this podcast. Yes, yes it is. um, Wow. Hear hear ye the word of the Lord. Um, (laughs) Paul says, (laughs) like, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For the things they do in secret are shameful even to mention, but all things being exposed by the light are made evident. For everything made evident is light. And for this reason, it says, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And I feel like that totally gets at like, what it means for like apocalypse happening all around us, even mm-hmm. personally, like in our beliefs. But you bring up, this is very interesting that you're using that scripture because that scripture is also used by literal interpreters as zombies. And that that's the end of the world. What? Wait, what? I've never oh. heard that. No, yes. it's not. Oh. Yes. What? Yes. No, it's those, not. <laughs> I yes. don't believe you. What? Those, yes, there are people. I am Josh. You should know me by now. I would not lie to you. There are people who truly believe. And I'm not like, I'm not belittling their belief. I'm not making fun. I'm simply pointing uh. out that there are people who truly believe and read that passage and have others to back it up from other books of the Bible that that is a precursor to the start of the apocalypse because that is zombies rising from the dead. Mm. And so okay. I think you bring up a good point. I'm also really glad you use that scripture, though, because that right there just shows why interpretation and context and deep conversation is important because... Like right. I just pointed out, there are people who say, oh, my God, he's talking about zombies End of the world. We have this very surface level understanding of apocalypse and mm-hmm. that when we use scripture to back up a point, that's when we get into some kind of dangerous conversation. And I'm really glad we're in this conversation, actually, because it's just so fascinating. So fascinating. Actually, you brought up something that somehow we didn't broach in our last episode. Steven, you like mentioned stuff about like lone wolfing, like outside of community. But like, yeah, and I feel like this would be a good example of a like a bad fruit, if you will, which is Mm -hmm. funny because that's like what that passage is talking about. Yeah. And like you could totally come to that conclusion, like growing up on zombie movies and zombie media and then like reading that verse for the first time with no scholarly background and being like, oh, my God. They're talking about zombies. Right. But like, Stephen, you, for instance, I would argue then that you're not that form of lone wolfer, even if you've like left church, because you are Mm. literally a part of conversations theologically, Mm -hmm. even if they're Mm -hmm. just ones you're listening to through podcasts and books. Like you're still in the discourse. Like you're not a lone wolf, even if you're not a part of a building. So you want to know something interesting? I just looked up the Merriam-Webster definition of apocalypse and Armageddon, like end of the world, great disaster, is not the first definition that pops up. Oh, even for English. And so, 
even for English. And so it's so interesting that that is the first thing that we come to. And I think, Josh, you Mm. brought up a great point. It's because media and pop culture has created this environment where that is the first thing that we want to think about. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. We get we get like a drive, like there's something within us that when we see zombies, when we see end of the world, sort of, you know, apocalyptic mm. imagery, that's the first thing that comes to mind because it's so heavily put out into the world. You know what's really funny about that, though, is that we don't have that problem with our modern media. We don't watch a zombie movie or like a day after tomorrow movie and be like, whoa, it's like predicting what's going to happen in two years. Right. We watch it and we know, A, it's fictional and B, it's saying something. It's like trying to say something about our psychology and our fear and maybe even speak to current events. And we like we know that it's not predictive. It it might be like forewarning. Like, for instance, like some Mm. good sci fi does that really well. Like Jurassic Park is a great example. Michael Crichton wrote it as like a we can't go here book. Right. Here's why. But we, we, we like only have that problem when we like look at these antiquated texts. Right. Oh, good point. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. I bet I bet the, I would be willing to bet that like the early readers of it approached it with the way that we approach sci-fi. Like maybe we'll have flying cars someday, but like that's not the point of sci-fi. The point of sci-fi right. and horror and end of the world disaster movies is to like make us think and prevent it in some mm-hmm. ways. Um, can I ask you guys what you think about the passage in the Gospels? And I can't figure out which of the four Gospels I it is. I think I know what you're going to say. But what the hell <laughs> is happening with Jesus coming back from the dead and other saints? Oh, I did is not know the where zombies we're talking about? <laughs> um, I don't have an answer for this. Really? <laughs> it's, like, it's like an obscure, like, one or two verses in the resurrection passages that say like, oh yeah, and among Jesus, like he wasn't the only one that rose. Like what? Right. Sorry. So what? I've but we also co- never talk about it. That is true. I've heard a couple understandings or interpretations, and so one of the ones that I've heard most commonly is so we can equate that with the fall of Lucifer and Lucifer taking a third of the angels with him, and so. Jesus coming back and bringing the saints with him uh, is sort of like a parallel to that. That's one interpretation that I've heard. I'm like, I don't know if I 100% agree with that. It's interesting. Mm. Mm. Um, But you that's a good that's a good point to bring up because like All Saints Day is a day, at least in the Methodist Church, that we acknowledge those saints in our life. Like those we typically say those who have passed on like in our church. And this is a way to commemorate them, blah, blah, blah. But Mm. you bring up a good point. Are those other than Jesus that supposedly rose from the dead, are they zombies? Are they really the saints? Like, who are these people? Why have they risen from the dead? Like, what is going on? So is what Paul talking about, like, uh, this is kind of where I was going with, like, prophetic languages. Like, it's already speaking to something that's either happening, has happened, or is happening now. And not something in the future. So, like, people interpret the Ephesian p- passage saying, what if, what if these are zombies? And then we have passages chronologically earlier than when Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians that make it sound like people are zombies. Mm-hmm. Or, like, rising from the dead with Jesus. Or Lazarus coming out of the tomb, even. Like, mm-hmm. oh, wait, maybe it's already happened. Hmm. And maybe the answer to that is Yes. Yeah, and may, and maybe that's what Josh is saying is like apocalypse is happening now. I think getting too worried like end times anxiety is not mm. it's not something we should ever put on someone and I don't I don't spend any time thinking about the end of the world or end of times. Um as far as a scientific explanation goes, I like I think we as a species have come to peace with the fact that our sun will eventually nova <laughs> or supernova. And I don't know if everyone's on that page, though, to be honest. I, that's mm. fair. But I think, like, an existential crisis like that, um, I think that bothers us because we're, we're worried about uh, concepts of, like, progeny and making sure that somehow our memory continues or, um, like, what would, be, what would be the point of the universe if we were wiped out, right? 
uh, boy, where was I going with this? Oh, I wanted to make the argument that the second coming of Christ already happened and that it was possibly the day of Pentecost. Oh, please continue. So in the second coming, like as described in the book of Revelation, um, Jesus is coming down from somewhere. Again, we have like three, three tiered language for this. Mm-hmm. We have the heavens above, the earth in the middle, or Midgard, if you're going to put it in Norse mythology, right? And then the underworld, or hell, or Gehenna, or whatever language you want to give Hades. But Jesus in the book of Revelation is also described symbolically. I don't think we're going to see like a man coming out of the clouds with a sword jutting out of his mouth for six feet. Um, and yet he's described as having a sword in a mouth. And I think uh, with all the wildly symbolic in- imagery going on in the book of Revelation, I think we could probably say that like the word of Christ coming to the people of Christ on earth um, and allowing us to establish a, a cosmic form of community, like the city, the new Jerusalem coming down, however you want to say that, like however many, like the city comes down and we have a place in which we can actively participate in the realization of the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. And in Jesus's ministry, when he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, I think we can also argue though i don't have passages in front of me which might anger some but i I think we could argue through the scriptures that like that jesus presents the kingdom of heaven as a now reality yeah like the here and also not yet right exactly and then i think i i think the the spiritual realization of the spirit of christ Mm. the day of pentecost where we get to where we start speaking in tongues and we can start relating to people like a a cosmic reversal of Babel. Mm -hmm. And now we can finally spread the, the walls of the new Jerusalem out and we can leave the gates open forever and welcome Mm. anyone in Mm -hmm. who wants to come in. Like, isn't that stuff we already talk about today? Or we should be. That's true. Emily, would this technically make Steven, would he fall under the a millennial camp? Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh. Where, like he believes there's there's no there's mm-hmm. not going to be a millennial a thousand year reign of Christ when he comes back because right. he's already here. We're like in the millennium or whatever. Yeah. Am I, I using that right? Tec- yes, and I think technically he would fall under that category, which is very fascinating. Mm. Huh. I love labels. Thank you for this. <laughs> Well, we already gave you one label, so... <laughs> Steven, you're officially not a millennialist. <laughs> I'm, I'm intrigued by that, but it's also like one of those things that I, I feel like is just going to be speculation forever. Yeah. Like, it, oh, absolutely. I don't know. You, there might be more support for one or the other. And in some ways, I think, Steven, you can, you can like somehow like go with what you're thinking and also like look to like the trajectory of apocalypse and God redeeming the world. Mm-hmm. For mm, instance, yeah. like the book of revelation and even like places in Paul, Paul's letters like talk about how like there's going to be like some sort of ultimate redemption of the world and like a new creation. And there's a lot of like confusing imagery that's in that, like a city coming down, but also like, like it redoing the earth or something. And like Mm -hmm. somehow we're in bodies. And I think that like you can, you can look forward to and imagine and hope for like the ultimate redemption of the world and of humanity. And that being different from like whatever the second coming means. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Do you know what I mean? Sure. I don't think you saying all of this discounts like the forward-looking hope of Christianity, necessarily. Mm-hmm. And I also don't think it denies, like, physical rex- resurrection, because you were kind of, like, wondering about, like, what were those saints that were wandering around, and, like, why don't we have a historical record of, like, <laughs> all these right. rando zombies wandering around Jerusalem? Like, you would think, <laughs> yeah. you would think that would have been mentioned somewhere if it had happened. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you're, like, disregarding things. I think that you're trying to seriously consider like what is actually meant by the biblical language sure Mm -hmm. 
Well, and I think I think the forward looking motion is is something that we shouldn't graze over. Like I think that's probably one of the most vital aspects mm-hmm. of what Christianity is is we have we have a hope pointing us to the future instead of mm-hmm. just like resting resting back on what what happened behind. Like do you feel like you have less of a future to look forward to then? If you think that the second coming Oh, well, less of a future. Uh will you elaborate on less of a future? Okay, here's where I'm coming from. Maybe you didn't experience this growing up, but I felt like any emphasis I heard growing up on the end times and to be honest, I I don't think it was a lot compared to some other people's experiences. But anytime I heard people talk about the end times, it it seemed like there was this emphasis on like Jesus is going to come back and fix everything that is wrong with the world. Like he came back mm, and like couldn't mm-hmm. do it. Fu- he like he couldn't do it fully the first time because like that's not how it works. We have to like do the work ourselves. But like he's going to come back someday and like actually fix everything and like restore the Garden of Eden and just like fix everything magically. Mm-hmm. And like that's what we have to look forward to, and maybe okay, also so the post that post restoration. Like yeah, like this is where we can imagine what our what our many broomed mansions will be like, and yeah, what do we yeah, do yeah, all yeah. day, right? Yeah. Mm. Oh no, I totally read books about people being transported to heaven, and but that also not being explained well with like, well, wait, what does that mean with the earth being remade or something? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess my short answer is no, I'm not worried about like experiencing less of a future. Um, I think, oh man, what do I think? I'm just past the place where I'm worried about what happens after this. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's going to sound really trite to say, but I, I'd rather continue to do work on how I can collaborate with Christ's spirit today and yeah. worry too far in the future because like i i like the operating definition of anxiety is getting is putting yourself way too far in the future and mm-hmm. Im- imagining the wrong outcomes um or like bad outcomes that's that's kind of like how i operate with what anxiety means to me but mm. i think i think it's still anxiety if you're getting so far ahead of yourself that you don't realize how you could be ushering kingdom of heaven today like by sure. by giving your neighbor uh, a hand i i feel like that's the treasure i find in like the thought experiment of like if jesus the second coming hasn't come for any other generation before us then it'd be kind of mm, self-centered mm-hmm. to think he would come back for us specifically right and like, like kind of like kind of like what you said about how like if our cosmology if like the universe only matters to us if we exist in it, mm-hmm. then yeah, like that's a pretty human centric view of how we exist in the universe. And I feel like right. I'm applying that to the idea of uh like the possible end of the world slash like the ultimate redemption of the world. Sure. And that like if we expect that to happen in our lifetime, then it really takes a lot of like in the moment burden off of us and be like, well, it's like probably going to happen soon. So we don't need to worry. Yeah. I don't like that attitude to be honest. No, Right. Well, cause you like, so you bring up a good point because like, if we're waiting for the second coming for those maybe who thought, Oh, it's definitely going to take place, you know, world war two, that would have been a great time for Jesus to return. Fantastic time. That would have been a wonderful time. And so if, if it didn't happen then, why not? Like, what? What mm. is the criteria? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, are we going to yeah. be searching for the reasoning as to why? And if so, is that then going to be the cause of the second coming to take place? Because we're then making sure that that happens, or did is you, it going to happen naturally? Oh, did ooh, either ooh, of you have, get told like how it would happen growing up? Like, what what the requirements were? Mm, uh, no, that wasn't really that wasn't really a topic of I discussion was. as a child. Oh, really? I didn't, I didn't hear a lot of. Um, I don't think I heard a lot of specifics. I think I I heard a lot of spiritual warfare language mm. about it. And oh, you know, yeah, I like, guess I did too. Yeah, demons are like the puppet masters of presidents and kings and uh, communist leaders, and like pulling the strings. And and Satan has this master plan, and 
I, I do. I mean, like I lived through 2012, like I survived the Mayan apocalypse. Uh, so like <laughs> there were and some you've cultural mostly specifics lived through 2020. So, right. And so there were cultural specifics that, uh, would come up from every, I was five at Y2K and everybody thought the world would just implode at that point too. So, right. Well, I was told growing up that there's this one verse, I don't know where it's at, off the top of my head, classic, um, but there's this, one, there's this one verse that says, like, the day will not come until, like, Christ has been preached to every nation or something like that. But it, mm-hmm. like, says it less explicitly, but I, I heard that interpreted mm-hmm. growing up as, like, we need to preach to literally everyone, and then that will usher Christ's second coming. Well, so if that's the case, then it'll never happen. Right. <laughs> yeah. Does it have to be like every person? Does it have to be like every every country or every school district? Or like what's the what's the like specifics right. here? Every human being above the age of accountability. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's what I always heard um missions like missionary right. work uh emphasized with is like this is why we do missionary work. That's a pretty classic. I think that's classical evangelicalism. Is it? Actually, I really do think it is. I think the the basis of the evangelizing work that Mm -hmm. uh, is interpreted or interpreted that is interpreted (laughs) that is interpreted out of the Great Commission is literally Mm, saying, you go use your 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 words to convince people that this is the right way and. Mm. Even if they're not convinced, as long as they've heard it once, then they're culpable to like make their own decision. Right. And once enough, once we've cr- reached critical mass, then Jesus will come <laughs> back, so he could have plausible deniability to say, "Well, like, well, you heard of but, me before, so what do you?" <laughs> but it's still right. even with that point of reference, like that still won't ever happen because we'll still have new no, people being born into this world, and they will grow up and. It's this never-ending cycle of but in evangelizing. The same, in the same evangelical world that, uh, in my experience, has been very Reformed theology, they have they have what's called the age of accountability that can say literally, like, well, are they eight years old? If not, mm-hmm. they're not culpable for whatever decision they made. But then what about those people that will turn eight years old? I agree with you. <laughs> Wait, I just Stephen, is the age of accountability also a reformed thing? I was I thought it was just a uh, a Catholic thing. Oh, um, th- uh, this is fair. You may need to critique me or like fact check me on it. But I, I grew it. up in I grew up in uh, in a lot of reformed teachings, like in youth group and stuff. So huh. that that's kind of like where I'm pulling it from. You might be onto something with Catholicism, though. Uh, so okay. Okay, so <laughs> I have a working theory that okay. um, Shoot. in the book of Revelation, uh, there's a lot of talk about the mark of the beast and like mm-hmm. Satan's number 666, however you want to interpret that. And people will find, will try to find and make meaning out of anywhere they could ascribe something to the mark of the beast. I've heard microchips. Um, mm mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think personally, so my, my working theory is that the mark of the beast is the anxiety induced in a person who overly worries about what the mark of the beast is. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> because if you're constantly looking so far into the future and, uh, and you're like mm. on edge for your literal demise, I don't, mm. I, I can't make an argument that Satan doesn't have a hold of you up then sure like the powers of evil don't have a hold of you because your mind is so crippled by anxiety and depression and fear like there are so many chemicals in your brain that ramp up as end times anxiety gets stronger in you Mm. that that seems like the forces of evil to me that seems like the accuser saying i've marked this one for me because i can't get him or because now you can't get him to realize that Christ offers a new way. That reminds yeah. me of the screw tape letters. There's this like passage that's oh, always yes. shared about like, yeah, make sure you're, I don't remember what the demons call the humans, but like, make sure your human is like mm-hmm. distracted by this and distracted by that. And like, by doing that, like you've got control of him. 
So, oh, yeah. what you're guys, saying is really C.S. Lewis-y. That's really interesting. You bring up a good point because if if you okay, so if you look at Revelation thirteen sixteen, which is where Mark of the Beast is actually referenced in the Bible. There you go. You're welcome. Um, Thank you. So the Greek word for Mark, referring to Mark of the Beast in this verse, is actually most commonly used for imprints or like documents mm. or coins. So money. Mm. So the mark mm. oh. is like images used in forms or items that typically lead to power or control mm. of others. Hello, all our presidents on paper money and quarters and dimes mm. and nickels. And oh, I mean, I mean, actually, you're accurate because I think they would have interpreted Mark of the Beast as like Caesar on their coins. Like Jesus kind of like exactly. Sim- yeah, no, I think you're right on the money, as it were. Hey, oh. <laughs> um, so you made me think of this thing, Stephen. Uh, back in ministry school, when I was becoming a Padawan of divinity, um, we yes. had to, we, uh, I don't remember which class it was for. I feel like in one class, we like had a Bible study methods class. And I think in that one, we like talked about revelation. And then in our preaching class, we like got assigned a passage of revelation to preach on. So they were like kind of hand in hand. We all had to Whoa. preach on one of the letters to the churches. You know how like at the beginning of the book, um, yeah. the writer of Revelation, who is mysterious, look it up, um, they they write to the seven churches in the area, and each one like has a couple different components, and those that like chunk of letters is like one of the best examples for biblical literacy and like reading the Bible for its genre and reading it with its context in mind. And ironically, I think the book of Revelation is probably the most taken out of context book in the entire Bible. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so for instance, or, have you guys read those letters? Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the tr- the letter to Laodicea. And the, yeah. Right. Have you heard any of the examples? Of like how they were like specific to those churches. Oh, um, oh! Give them to us. Okay, Laodicea. Since you brought it up, um, this is the one I have off the top of my head. So that was really convenient. You know, it like has this famous passage where Jesus is talking to them. So that's what's interesting about these letters too is that the writer says Jesus, like through the Spirit, is like talking oh, to these yeah. churches directly. You're right because they're red letters, mm-hmm. Ooh, right? Mm-hmm. And so like this mm-hmm. part. This is also ironic. Like this, this is the only part of the book of Revelation that should be regarded as like, quote unquote, direct God to human revelation versus like, this is imagery about who knows what. This is a human trying to describe what he's experiencing. Right. Yeah. So like the church of Laodicea has this famous passage where Jesus is saying, like, you are neither hot or cold, so I will vomit you out of my mouth. And I would be willing to bet you grew up hearing that described mm. as God is describing lukewarm Christianity and you're not on yep. fire for God. So yeah, yeah. Yep. get on fire. Yep. But that is mm-hmm. Laodicea was in the middle of two different water sources. The next town over <gasps> had a hot springs. The, the town mm. uh, like the other direction had a cold flowing river. And by the time both water sources made it to Laodicea, both were lukewarm. Yep. <gasps> mm. And so it was neither it was neither good for refreshment and mm-hmm. like rejuvenation and it also was not good for cleaning and cooking. So Right. They would probably hear that as you're useless. Yeah. Like I can't use you for anything. Oh. And so like each book or each uh, each one of those letters to those churches has really specific context clues in it that like are less you're less likely to see if you just like read it with modern eyes. But mm-hmm. if you like learn about those specific contexts and that time period, some stuff like that really, really stands out mm-hmm. like stuff about like other religions that were happening or um, like controversies that were happening. And I think those letters are the best example of like being biblically literate and like reading for yes context mm. and genre. 
But it's like in the book that's like always taken out of context that we're like, well, this is probably about the end of the world. So Right. And that if if you think about it, it makes sense, though, because if you think about historically, who are those reading the Bible? It was those who had an education and those who were told that they could read the Bible. And so people for so long have been told what to believe or what Mm. to read or understand. And so that makes sense that. It's still continuing, even in the 21st century, that we have these types of interpretations because people were not taught how to deconstruct and have context when reading a Bible. They were never given mm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Also, mm. fun fact, I was just thinking, I was thinking about how important numbers, like, like numbers are in the Bible and in our world. And how the number seven is a number that typically is a number represented for completeness and how the number six is a number that falls just short of being complete. And so many interpreters have seen 666 as being inherently incomplete. And that is like the epitome Mm. of falling short from completeness. And that's Mm. just so interesting. That is interesting. So... After all of this is said and done, I'm like still left with. If I think apocalypse is now and that like I don't have to wait for the end of the world for Mm -hmm. like God to reveal what God is doing here and now, like kind of like what you're talking about, Stephen, and like how I experience like personal. Like revelation, not in the sense of like I'm Joseph Smith, I'm starting my own religion, but maybe in the sense of like, I don't know if I believe that I don't know if I can go to church anymore. I want to go to church mm-hmm. again. Like, how do I, like, how do we become more aware of these apocalyptic moments, whether it's personally or it's culturally or it's like happening in our community? How do we like leave ourselves open to God revealing God's self apocalyptically? I think you're already doing that. And we started doing that by coming to an understanding of how we are defining apocalypse. Mm. And so now that we have this framework in mind, we are able then to carry on with that understanding in mind and, you know, talking with other people about it. And I think in a sense, just literally opening our eyes and like actually Mm. not just, not just seeing, but observing and you know, kind of deconstructing as we are seeing things unfold and asking those questions and reading and having these kind of conversations that force us to look at context and, you know, belief systems and cultures Mm. and just literally opening up to what is happening around us. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think an attitude that would say everyone is my teacher and everything has something to teach me is, is vital in a moment like that because, um, you know, I can start feeling the, the pull away from church, uh, like we've talked about. And yet if I'm not open to it and if I'm not really ready to like journal through the process and do a self-reflection work, um, and have deep conversation about like, what did that used to mean to me? And, Am I being wooed into a new place? Like, is wisdom calling me out the door? Um, Mm. Mm. Or, like, uh, am I actually going to dance with my divine partner? Mm. So, like, uh, Richard Rohr Mm -hmm. talks about the divine dance. And if we're in a divine or sacred two-step, there's always going to be a partner that has to make the first move away in order to draw the other partner into the beautiful movement that is the dance itself. So he Mm. talks about the the ever presencing yet always withdrawing presence of Mm. God, because it's always like, I'm here, like we're dancing together, but I have to move away from you in order for us to create like a beautiful work of visual art. Like we're dancing. We can't just stand here, you know? Um, so being like, I feel like what's been really open to keep going. No, I mean just being open to that, the withdrawing nature Mm -hmm. of God. Like there's a reason Mm -hmm. That in the book of Job, the main part of the story is him dealing with the withdrawal of God. And we're not hearing uh. almost 40 chapters of how freaking great his life was before or after his apocalypse. 
Mm. Because like the mm. deep, the yeah. real stuff, the real stuff happens in the worst of our stories. But then mm. we get to look back like so when he regains his land and he has new family. Um, I used to read that like, wow, that's kind of cheap. Like God just like killed a bunch of people to teach Job a lesson. And then he gave him a, a new family back. Like what? Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, if you think about it as withdrawal, I feel like that totally changes it. That's really right. interesting. Even though God also doesn't affirm that like in that story that God's presence equals like profit and blessing, blessing. And stuff. That's exactly. Yeah. Oh, you also made me think of Jonah and how like Jonah was literally one of the prophets. And then Ugh. God did something and revealed God's character. And Jonah was like, I'm not down with that. <laughs> like right. he was a prophet. I don't like right. how radical God is being in this moment. So yeah, no. God, you weren't supposed to act like that. So, right. well, you know, he's only human, and we humans tend to do that often or not. You know, wait, we are you referring to, to Jonah out. or to God? <laughs> to Jonah, God is only human. Jesus, we do have like a very limited mm. perspective, and so. Yeah, I think at times we see this radicalness and we're like, eh, yeah, no, I'm not on board with that. Stephen, the other thing you made me think of as you were talking there was, I think what's been really helpful for me the last couple of years is going back to, we just forget that we've been given the ideas we have and that we haven't always had them. <laughs> right, like we literally yeah. came mm -hmm. to them at some point right. and then we normalized them and internalized them. But like at some point we didn't have those. At some point they were new ideas. Right. At some point, someone had to tell us about Jesus or, like, told us that the world isn't as we thought it was. And therefore, we should expect to continue having that experience happen. Like, maybe it will happen less. Like, like aging is a good example. Like, you learn a ton, like, going to school, growing up, and then, like, the learning curve kind of plateaus. So, like, I think mm. there is that in things about theology and religion and stuff. But, like, I don't think we should still discount it like we're still going to be having new experiences like at some point we will experience what it is like to be old and we have never experienced that before <laughs> yeah yep we have not experienced what it is like to be old in christianity it's going to be a new experience i feel like that's been a really helpful idea for me like expecting the apocalypse for myself <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know what i mean right yeah because all, all you're doing then all we're saying if we've defined our term correctly is that you're expecting a, a seismic shift to happen somewhere. And right. You're, and now though you're prepared for it and you're actually willing to dance with it instead of like resist it. Like, Oh, okay. So the image in my head now is a skyscraper is intentionally engineered to sway in the wind because if it was too rigid, it would oh, yeah. just snap. Right. Oh yeah. So, like, if, yeah. I like that. If, if we can learn to expect apocalypse and expect like a withdrawing of God's presence for a time and understand that that is what it means to make a beautiful dance together, mm -hmm. then we get to enter it with an attitude of like, here we go. I'm learning something, but I'm going to trust my leader in the, ooh, in the ooh, dance. Right. Ooh, Cause there's always ooh, a leader and a ooh. follower. Ooh, mm. me, 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 go, me, me. go. I, go, this last year, I read this book. Finally, uh, shout out to my friend RJ. I finally read the book. You're welcome. Uh, I read this book called Anti-Fragile by this author. Oh. His name is Nassim Taleb. Have you guys heard mm -hmm. of him? Yeah. I think I have actually heard of him. Yeah. Have you read his book, Stephen? Do you know what I'm talking about? I haven't. I've heard a podcast interview or two, though. Okay. Uh, I'm going to extremely simplify this concept, but he's a, he's a statistician and also an Orthodox Christian but he's, he argues from like a, like a statistical point of view and like a, from a logical, like logically statistical point of view, like logic is so involved in there from what okay. I understand. Most of the book went over my head, but his, his concept is basically we need to have a working concept for the opposite of fragility. And he argues that like f the opposite of fragility is not strength. It's not robustness. It's not that like rigid building. Uh, actually, the rigid building would be like fragile in your analogy. Like it would just yeah. crumble. A stronger yep. building 
would be like the one that can sway and like withstand, but like nothing changes. Mm. And he Uh argues that we need to have a concept of, because like he, he would argue that like strength is in the middle and fragility is one side that like gets weaker with stress. He argues that we need to have an opposite of something that gets stronger with stress. And he calls it anti-fragility. Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And so I think that that's a really interesting concept for something like apocalypse and especially faith change. Because like, like at some point, we're all going to experience, whether it's religious or cultural or sure. relational, we're all going to experience something that's like world shifting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. like, if we haven't set ourselves up in a way that can with not just withstand, but like it sounds so corny, but like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Like that only works if you've like set yourself up for that. Sometimes, sometimes you're worse on the other side, but I think that's an interesting concept to apply to faith and apocalypse because Mm -hmm. actually I would argue that that's kind of in the idea of revelation and the kingdom is like, it's going to get, it's going to get worse and it's going to get stressful and it's going to be world shifting, but like, it's going to be perfect at the end. Mm. Sure. Like that's kind of the hope, right? Generally speaking. It's presenting like a cosmic cycle, like, because right. That, right. that really is, as that really is our experiences. Things get worse before they get better. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Right. Like before you're going to get good at piano, you're going to be bad at piano for a long time and be very frustrated by practicing right. through it. But eventually and- you're going to be like a virtuoso. And there's right. no like set defined timeline either. Like if mm. Steven and I were to take up piano at the same time, like we're both going to be bad, but we're going to we're going to be good at maybe different points in our lives. And mm. that's not the point. It, you know, the point is that it will get better. Don't mm. worry about the time in between because it will end. Don't try to define it in a certain period of of time mm. for yourself. Right. Emily. Do you think our vision of apocalypse should be more or less equated with Jesus's view of the kingdom of God? Like it's here and it's not yet. Oh, I yes, yeah, I do. Excellent. And I think that, and I think it speaks to the, I think what we were just talking about the, you know, it's it's going to get worse before it gets better. It's 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 here but not yet. Like there's this mm. weird limbo taking place. And yeah. we just have to, we have to kind of sit and be comfortable with that uncomfortable notion. And I don't think right. as, he, I don't think we can fully do that yet. And I don't know if we ever will, but it's a great goal to have to say, okay, well, all right, uh, we'll see how this goes. But yeah, I do. I think so. I don't know about you guys, but I, I felt it really comforting when I heard someone point out a while back that. You know, the, like the story of Jacob in the Bible and like how he wrestles with God and then God changes his name because mm-hmm. he wrestled with mm-hmm. God. Like he like the name change means like he wrestled with God. Right. And like that literally became the name of the people, like the people who wrestle with God. Yeah. And I like mm-hmm. had never heard someone put it in that context. And I was like, I feel like that really changes things. Like I've always heard mm-hmm. the Israelites described as like we're the chosen people, but like their name literally meant wrestles with Russell. God. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, yeah. and th- and this is why the tradition of midrash inside Judaism is so important is they get together and actually have talks like this and and right. throw out different ideas and say like that's not how the spirit is teaching me here about this. Mm. Oh. Mm-hmm. We're wrestling. We're keeping the tradition of wrestling going. Right. Yeah. Mm. Wow. I don't know if I have any other thoughts about this. That's so, you guys, that was, that was a beaut. I liked that one that a was, lot. <laughs> no, this was good. Oh, okay. Well then to wrap up, thank you to Louis Zong for the use of his song in full color off his album here. Go get his stuff on Bandcamp and Spotify and jam the heck out of them. And we would love to hear what any of you all think about Apocalypse. Uh, you guys should follow us on Instagram and Twitter at RavelPod and... We're going to post some discussion questions. We really want to hear what you think about this. So please follow us there. Also, you can find any of our handles in the show notes. And with that, just know an apocalypse can happen at any time, at any point, and with anyone. one.
for a fresh twist on a classic concept? Try the Whiskey Bench podcast. Start with a free pour of our complicated and fascinating world. Followed by an ounce or two of intellectual humility. Add a dash of philosophy, politics, or current events. Zest with fresh, spicy opinions. Garnish with shenanigans. Best served neat. I'm Stephen Torna. I'm Kat Dwyer. And I'm Stephen Henning. This is a podcast where we seek to graduate the understanding of our world beyond meme culture. We find that a well-rounded cocktail has a lot in common with good conversation. It's all about balance and complementary flavors. So join us every week as I present you with a new cocktail recipe paired with wide-ranging conversation. Follow us on social media at WhiskeyBenchPod and subscribe to The Whiskey Bench wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, always drink responsibly and cheers to a fulfilled life with all its beauty. Mm-hmm.